You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Danny Fingeroth, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is The Amazing Spider-Man, episode 22, covering a period of Spider-Man from 1991 to 1992. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay. And I'm your Spider-Man co-host, Adam Chapman. 22 episodes. Uh, we haven't actually recorded 22 episodes, so it sounds pretty cool that we've recorded 22 episodes about Spider-Man. But uh, we're doing these, we're jumping out of order. We have, though, recorded a few of the episodes prior to this episode. So we have a good long run of um, Amazing Spider-Man episodes, haven't we, Adam? Yeah, I mean, it's it's impressive that, you know, we're, we're getting big, you know, big swaths of Spider-Man and consecutive volumes. I, I think that's one of the, the, I guess, the volume lines where we've had the most uninterrupted runs for the most part. I mean, which is pretty impressive. When the Epic Collections were first announced... And the, the the idea was that they would be releasing things out of order and there would be like a volume here, a volume there. I thought, how on earth are we going to ever see any sort of progress in the in these lines? But now that we're five years in and we can see that they're actually, you know, it's not that they're doing them out of order. It's that they start at certain points in these long running histories and then sort of carry on from those points. So we've we started with... Uh, when when did the, these? I guess we got the Cosmic Adventures one first, and then we got the subsequent two volumes, and then they went back a little further, and now we're catching up uh, to the beginning of Cosmic Adventures. Yeah, it's interesting that they would start with Cosmic Adventures. I'm I'm curious at some point in your podcast, like, have you had a chance to reach out to David Gabriel or someone else who's kind of around at the launch of the Epic Collections to really kind of say, like, did they ever? think it would catch on that they'd end up because remember how there was only a few lines at the beginning and the releases were kind of like it felt like there was a schedule but it felt like we would take forever to get certain places and now it's a few years in and there's just there's so many volumes like don't you have like 100 volumes or something crazy (laughs) yeah it's almost at 120 and we have we're, we're reaching the halfway mark with some of these books now it's we're almost at six years into the epic collections they've been around for almost six years now wow and we are at the halfway point for Captain America and for Avengers and I think for Spider-Man too. They're, because if these books have about 22 to 24 volumes and now we're reaching the 11th or 12th release of each of these books, yeah, we're, we're 50% in. And that's pretty cool. Crazy. Yeah. Which means if they keep up the pace of two a year, we'll get these done in another five years or so. That's not too long. No, it's not. I'm also curious, just based on demographics. Like, obviously, like you, you know, you see a lot of the posts in the Marvel, um, on, on your own Facebook page, et cetera, and also on the Marvel Masterworks forum. I'm always curious about, you know, of the people buying these, how many are people who have read all this material before, and how much of it is people kind of starting out with characters in a totally fresh way. 
Um, and I, I, I'd be curious to kind of understand the, the demographics better because when I first started, I was like, who is it going to be for? Is it is it for the diehards who now want to in collected format, or is it for the people who never really had a chance to get in? And this is this is the opportunity. I'm just curious who's actually buying them. That's a great question, and I don't know. I I have reached out to people like like uh, Dave Gabriel, but with no response. So I'll keep on doing that and maybe see if we can get some answers because that those are all great questions. I, I would really like to know that too. Well, I'd love to know the math too, because we always see, you know, there's always someone posting about the sales, right? Like, you yeah. know, each month when you have a new Epic, what, it, what it's selling in the market. And I'm always curious, like, you know, what is their threshold? What What is it? What is a successful book? Uh, is it different for Star Wars lines versus other lines? How they decide to, uh, this is so a field, so I apologize. And you can cut this if you need to, but it's not Spider-Man related, but just kind of existential questions on the Epic collections. I'm always curious because everyone likes to look at the data, but what does the data really mean? And, and how does Marvel read it? Yeah. And, and the, the sales charts only tell us based on the websites that we have access to, at least, um, True. The, they, they only tell us what is being sold within the first month, like the initial release um, at comic shops only. So it doesn't count for Amazon. It doesn't count for bookstores. Mm. Uh, it only counts for comic shops because it's, I think Diamond produces those those uh, numbers. And, gotcha. and so it's it's good. They look, it looks like they're selling well. And we can obviously say that they're selling more than what we see there because many, many, many people I know just buy them off of Amazon or I'm sure, I mean, I always see them at bookstores, so they must st- sell if they keep on stocking them in, you know, your local Barnes and Noble or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and that's good. And the numbers have been rising. It was just a couple of years ago when a, a new Epic release based on these sales numbers would be, they would hover around maybe 900 units sold in the first month. And now uh, it's consistently over a thousand units sold in a month. So people are 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 becoming more aware of the epics and are jumping on board and are being more committed to the line, if not one line, if not all of them, like I am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's great. Yeah, no, for sure. So should you want to get started with this beautiful new volume? Well, not even new, this beautiful volume we have in front of us? Yeah. yeah. So Round Robin, this, this epic collection is sort of a grab bag of a bunch of different things. Uh, <laughs> It, it's uh, it's got a, it's got three annuals that take up the first 170 pages of this book. Those are big annuals. And then we have a two-part story with Nova. We have the round robin story, which is six parts, and then we wrap it up with two issues dealing with cardiac and a graphic novel. So there is like a really large variety of content here, um, all very indicative of this era of Spider-Man. Well, it's it's transition, right? Because I mean, this is this is the era where you have Mark Bagley taking over, so you have that transition. Um, you know, Michelini is not that far out from being done with the book. Like he's still he's still got two years left, but you know, it's not the heyday of his period. Um, he's he's an interesting writer because he he definitely writes to the strengths of his artists, which at times it almost feels like his his scripts lose a bit of their identity because he's really working with who his artist is, which is great in terms of allowing the artist more, you know, um, autonomy to kind of do the stories they want to do and really have personal expression. But in terms of consistency of story, it feels like it starts to go away a little bit. I don't know if that's fair. What do you think? No, I think you're right. I think that especially when we were reading that, the Eric Larson volume, it really felt like Eric Larson type stories. 
versus mm-hmm. these ones, which are a little bit more low key, I think, because Mark Bagley is just a more low key artist than Eric Larson is. Oh, for sure. And and Andy's again, he's still young. He's he's a much younger artist and not that Larson was old either, but you know, everyone kind of comes on the big marquee book in different ways. Yep. And uh Bagley probably also maybe felt that, you know, his style wasn't going to be like Larson and, and uh McFarland and he just had to kind of make his own way. It is yeah, it's definitely a weird grab bag. It, it's the transition volume. I feel like the volume after this is going to be very strong it's going to be strong it's going to be weird because you have some weird stuff coming up right before the clone saga but i think it'll feel a little bit more cohesive as a whole than this did because you have so many different parts and as you said you know you have the three you know what is it king size or giant size annuals maybe you wouldn't get that in the next volume because it doesn't have a story that goes through all three so it'd be interesting to see what it looks like yeah uh, one more point that i just want to make before we jump into the annuals is that uh, it's been the trend in the epic collections that if they're uh, if they are reprinting an annual story, because you know in the '90s all the annual stories crossed over with other annuals at the, of the time, mm-hmm. it would be the trend that they would reprint the entire story in one epic collection and then just the single parts in other epic collections, so that if you're buying all the epic collections, you're not getting the same story reprinted three or four times. Yeah. And what they would do is they would print, let's say that the story starts in Avengers. So they would print the entire Avengers annual backups and everything. And then only the parts from Iron Man or Captain America and Thor that relate to the the story that, that connects. But in this mm. annual, they print all of the backups for all of the Spider-Man annuals, Web of Spider-Man and Spectacular Spider-Man. Yeah. So that tells me... Either they they thought oh it relates because it's all Spider Man, or they don't re- they were at the time at least didn't have any plans to start spectacular Spider Man or Web of Spider Man epic collections. Otherwise, they wouldn't have put those backups in because it's just going to be um, double dipping on the material once they if if they ever do start another Spider Man epic collection line. So so how do you feel about that? So I mean this this volume was from 2015. So it's 4 years old. So obviously their publishing plans could have matured and changed since then. But like do you, I mean how like do you I mean do you want I am guessing because you love all epic collections that like you would want to see a web of Spider-Man um epic collection um a spectacular Spider-Man uh, probably a Marvel team-ups but uh, epic collection. For but sure. I guess the problem becomes once you get into the crossover period, you know, are you going to have Craven's Last Hunt in every single volume? Yeah. Probably not, but you can't just have the one-shot issues because it's such a weird disjointed reading experience. Right. Um, so how do you handle that? And I don't I don't think there's a good answer. And maybe that's if there's any hesitation on creating a spectacular and all these other ones it's not because it won't sell because it's spider-man and if you look at the some of the roster material you have some stuff that people haven't read by bill mantlow you have obviously the criminally underprinted uh jm demateus run which people have been screaming for for years yeah i mean there's stuff there that will sell and it's spider-man their flagship character so what is the holdup i think the double dipping is a, is a big part of that for sure here here's what i think is we're going to start to see and we already are seeing a lot of these epic collections going out of print Mm. and people are like how come they're out of print if i'm trying to collect all of them and i'm just starting now how come i can't get the you know i can't get the old volumes that is unfortunately just the way a lot of the publishing works it's like they're not keeping their marvel masterworks books all in print either so if you're jumping on with fantastic four number volume 22 
you can't get a lot of the past ones because they're they're long gone. They're out of print. Um, but I feel like the ethos has always been different. That you know the masterworks were always meant as this, this high end niche item. Um, it's you're lucky if they ever reprint it because you know again it's this kind of high end item. Whereas the epics always felt that they were positioned as the low cost alternative for you to have everything. And the fact that they were going to publish publish them out of order was not necessarily a deterrent to be able to have them all. Yeah. You know you know what I mean? Like I think the concept behind them is not necessarily the same. Um, whereas with the, the masterworks, I think it's a completely different mindset. That's just me. But I think, you know, if you even look at how they market them, how, you know, the different covers for the Marvel masterworks, obviously there's a very different uh, bent on how they're trying to position those as again, the collectible niche product. And to speak of the, of the Marvel masterworks, I mean, now we have spectacular Spider-Man in Marvel masterwork form. So it's not like you're not seeing these remastered versions that you could then put in epics. Maybe they're waiting for more of it to be Marvel masterwork. But I mean, if you're waiting for the 90s stuff to happen, you're going to be waiting a long time anyway. I think it comes down to whether or not they think that they can keep selling them. Cause if, if something like, um, I don't know, let's say, what was okay let's let's take cosmic adventures for instance that's one of the first ones that came out it's currently mm-hmm. out of print uh they haven't reprinted it are they sitting on it because they're they're thinking boy we j- it took like five years to for us to sell out of the first printing of of cosmic adventures so why would we want to print another thousand of them because they, you mm. know they they have to print a thousand of them because otherwise they got to bump up the price because you the, you know the larger quantities they print them in the cheaper it is for them to a- actually print it so they don't want to lessen the print run because that costs more and if they're not selling them if they're just going to sit in warehouses the entire time it's it's not worth it for them right yeah um i can see certain ones like craven's the last hunt craven's last hunt would probably they could reprint that one till the cows come home because it's super super popular not every volume is going to to perform like that though no i mean and i I mean we've spoken about this before but cosmic adventures always felt like the weirdest choice you know like you know like there's other stuff that has not been reprinted before that is going to be more popular than that um, there's just something about that's just that's that's a hodgepodge, you know. Like that's uh, yep, coming yep. out of the gate swinging. That is not. <laughs> it was a weird choice, and maybe they just wanted to see what would happen when they just threw out um, a random a random book that uh, wasn't one of the biggest hitters. And that's kind of all of the first volumes. Every single one of those first <laughs> volumes was sort of like that. Um, the the Iron Man one was the Denny O'Neill Luke McDonald run that is not. That's right. A highly acclaimed run at all, but people haven't haven't seen it before because it hasn't been reprinted. But but anyway, so why why I was saying this about the reprinting stuff is for something like Maximum Carnage, mm. you could easily do a volume, an Amazing Spider-Man epic collection that's all sixteen parts of the Maximum Carnage story, and then in five years when it's out of print, re-release Maximum Carnage, but give it the spectacular Spider-Man trade dress. And then mm. another five years down the road, when that one's out of print and they want to reprint Maximum Carnage again, because that book is always being reprinted, then they print it with the Web of Spider-Man trade dress. And then you get all of them. They don't. They, they keep on reprinting a story that they know will sell, but mm-hmm. they're they're filling those other slots. I don't know. That's something that could happen. I don't know if it will. Probably not. But that's uh, something that could happen. Um, and as much yeah. as we are excited that 
we've had we have so many you know these amazing spider-man collections that are uninterrupted again like we have at the moment what 17 to 22 yeah uh we're just freezing 16 and then we'll have 15 to 22 but it's just it's also glaring to me that we have like the first four just about because the new one i guess has just come out number four and then we have this weird gap between seven and 15 and that feels like the material that has never seen the light of day yeah and i think a lot of that uh the common opinion is that because it's being masterworked which is kind of the high priority and the standard mm. for reprints once they reprint that stuff then they'll so- slowly start releasing it in trade form so I think we kind of have to wait a little bit for those books to get a little further along. But eventually, it'll come to the point, if they're releasing two a year, that they'll have to release that material before it becomes masterworked because masterworks only come out once a year, and a lot of those titles are even every other year. True. And, I mean, obviously, there's also some, you know, some of it has been reprinted because we've had the alien costume stuff has been reprinted. So, like, that period we've seen right. before yep. although there's some issues right after that that haven't really been between i guess issues uh volumes 15 to 16 uh the roger stern stuff i would imagine had some sort of reproduction done because they did have a nice omnibus sure yeah of course you know but i guess maybe there's an argument you don't want to double dip that stuff it's just interesting that you have this large swath of kind of bronze age stuff or or you know bronze coming into the kind of the 80s period that just hasn't shown up in epics and i would like to see it <laughs> yep well it's gonna happen they're running out of the 90s stuff they they've pretty much printed most of the the 90s unless they they keep going forward we should probably talk about these comics (laughs) i I think so we totally should uh okay so these these annuals here this story is called the vibranium vendetta and it's it stars spider-man Kind of just barely. In fact, as the further we get into the story, the less of a role he actually plays. So it's interesting, and we're going to mention this later when we get there, but, you know, so you have two storylines here. You have the the vibranium data in the annuals, and then you have the round robin, the psychic's revenge. And these are both the kind of the longer epics, and Spider-Man's in them, but isn't necessarily that much of a main character. I would argue he's at least more of a main character here. And I, di- I didn't find myself distracted from the material and realizing, well, wait a minute, where's Spider-Man? Like, why isn't he more of a, a thing here? I, I Maybe it's just the, the quality of the writing felt better in the Vibranium Vendetta. I thought the, the writing throughout the three annuals was pretty on point. I thought Michelangelo did a good job, because I think he writes them all, right? Uh, yep. So he did a good job. I thought, like, I, I, I bought into the story. There was a lot going on. There's a lot of different characters, but it didn't feel piecemeal and kind of weirdly hodgepodge as, well, eventually we'll get there with uh, Round Robin, Psychic's Revenge, which felt more like, let's just throw people in, whereas this felt more organic. So I really like these annuals. Uh, I, the art was a whole other story, but I thought the scripting <laughs> was actually quite strong. The art, yeah, the art is... Uh... It, some of it's hit or miss. It, so the artist in this story, for the first and third part at least, is a guy that I've never heard of before. His name is Guang Yap. And he borders more toward the realistic side of things. Uh, so mm-hmm. his characters often look a little bit more stiff. Uh, and maybe because he uses photo reference or something like that. But uh, they're, it's not nearly the same sort of dynamic poses that we are used to with Eric Larson or Mark Bagley. Uh, the middle one is Marie Severin, who, of course, is a longtime Marvel employee and artist and uh, with the notable run on the Hulk back in the 60s. This mm-hmm. is sort of later in her career, 30 years later. So it's 
Um, I think it's maybe she's showing her age a little bit. Uh, it's not doesn't have the same impact as a lot of her Hulk stuff. That's for sure. It's interesting. So, like in the first uh, chapter, we have you know the well. I guess we'll we'll do a quick overview in a second. But when we have uh, the characters from Roxxon, and we have the the guy who's uh, basically this the spin master, but who's I guess the EV the executive vice president or something like that. Is it just me, or does he look so much like Stanley that it's <laughs> distracting? Yeah, I was going to say that same thing. Actually, he's very much a Stanley kind of from the. Uh, I can't remember if he looked. He, his hair was gray by this point in the 90s, right? Um, I think so. But, like, I mean, if you had called him Funky Flashman, I would have been like, yeah. Like, he just <laughs> yes. he just looks so much like Stanley. I mean, the, the, the glasses, the mustache. I'm like, totally. was this on purpose? And he's, like, the villain? Like, it just felt this weird meta commentary, and I, I wasn't sure how to take it. Like, especially, like, obviously, these days, there's a lot of narratives around Stanley about either pro-Stanley or, or, or con. Like, it seems like there's not a lot of... It's a binary for a lot of people. It's it's not a, a gray situation. But here, it just felt so weird that had this main kind of villainous character. And every time the first artist illustrated it, he looks so much like Stan. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's so funny. Like, what are we to take from that? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's intentional or a coincidence. No idea. It's interesting. So, like, I, th- I feel like annuals, especially these days, definitely have a bad rap. I think this was some of the best annuals I've read in terms of actual writing. Like, I thought, again, the main story was enjoyable. I thought most of the backups were good. Uh, again, the art is maybe a different story. The art did feel like it was more like kind of a tryout for some of these people or, you know, just kind of whoever was around who, who could operate a pencil kind of. But the actual writing I thought was really solid. And I'm not used to that from annuals. I'm used to the back matter feeling extraneous and kind of being hard to read. And the the main story just kind of being like, okay, well, I guess it's there. Whereas this felt so different and a very pleasant surprise, especially because you're front loading this collection with these three annuals. And I expected to be like, oh, man, I got to get through this. And I was pleasantly surprised. Yep. Yeah, it's it definitely. And I think the benefit is that you know, D- David Michelini is at the helm here. So it feels consistent um, with the rest of the, the, with the rest of the story. Like he's, he's a good solid writer. One thing I think it might, part of it might be is that we've, we've mentioned, I'd mentioned a few minutes ago where it felt like at this period, you had a lot of Michelini writing for his artist. Well, in an annual situation where they probably didn't know who's going to be writing it, he was probably just pounding out a script that had to be foolproof for anyone to be able to draw it. So therefore, it might be more pure Michelini because it's his expression, not him trying to tailor a specific story a certain way, but just trying to tell a story that he's interested in. And maybe that's why it's better. Maybe that's why it's more consistent because it's not beholden to who in his mind he's writing for. It's kind of like if you're writing a movie script and you know, if I'm writing it because I think I want Topher Grace to be the main character, it's going to read differently than I just want it to be the best character who's telling the story. Totally true. Yeah, I can I can see that. That that's very possible. Maybe I'm just so bullish on this because some of the other stuff in here wasn't as good. So I'm <laughs> so I'm really loving it. But I did start yeah. with it. Like again, it wasn't like I read the other stuff, came back. Like I legitimately read it from you know start to finish, and I really enjoy the annual. So as I've interrupted you enough. What is the vendetta, uh, Vibranium Vendetta about? Okay, so let's tackle all three of the Vibranium Vendetta parts together. Okay. And then after that, we can talk about the Outlaw Justice story, uh, all okay. three parts of that. And then after that, let's do whatever little one-shot fillers that, that are after that, uh, just so that we can have the consistency of our conversation here. So the Vibranium Vendetta, the it's a Spider-Man, Iron Man, Black Panther team-up. 
<laughs> you know, it's funny. It's from a day and time when those the other two characters were not important at all. Okay, so Roxon, the Roxon Corporation has an experimental synthetic vibranium that they're unveiling to the world at a press conference, and so that's why Black Panther's there because he's like got to figure out what this is all about. And Iron Man's there because he's he is just a, a bodyguard keeping the peace just in case anything happens. And then Spider-Man's the photographer there, so everyone has a purpose for being at that spot right there, then and there, which is kind of nice. But Kingpin, there's there's a few different threads here. So the Kingpin is hiring Ghost to take out Roxxon's experiment so they can't replicate it because Kingpin says they're going to make a ton of money and I can't let them have a ton of money because I'm not going to get a ton of money. And at the same time, Ultron, of all people, <laughs> breaks yep. out of the vault and says, I need something to make my body stronger and sees the press report on the this new experimental vibranium and is going to go steal it. So we have, oh, and then <laughs> there's one more storyline. One of the guys who works for Roxxon um, gets transformed by the vibranium in some sort of explosion. I'm not exactly sure how, but he gets transformed into a character called Sunturion. Who was a pre-existing character. Oh, really? Oh, okay. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure even in the story they mentioned that he's been this way before. Oh yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically, by the end of the by the end of the story, Ultron takes over Roxxon, the Roxxon building. The ghost kind of tries to do his job, but Ultron shows up, and uh, at the very end, the showdown is between the characters and Centurion. Uh, it's kind of just Iron Man and Black Panther who take out all the bad guys at the end. Spider-Man really doesn't do anything. So that's kind of the whole story in a nutshell. Um, that's one hell of a nutshell. There's a lot in there. There's a lot in there, yeah. I should I should point out, so I just checked it just to make sure. So Centurion was originally created by, big surprise, David Michelini. Okay. Uh, originally appeared in Iron Man 143 back in 1981. Uh, okay, so and that's I guess that makes sense why Iron Man is there then in the story, to give a little bit more of the history. It is fun to see Spider-Man, you know, tangle with villains who aren't in any way usually connected to him. Again, like, you know, he, at this point, had never seen the ghost before. He was an Iron Man villain as well. Um, actually, I guess it's all Iron Man villains or Avengers villains, because then you have Ultron as well. So right, yeah. uh, there's no real Black Panther villain, per se. Um, just, I guess, corporate greed. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I guess so. Uh, that is, that's a good point. Yeah, these are all weird non-Spider-Man villains, but uh, that's why I liked Acts of Vengeance so much. Because we got to see Spider-Man mm -hmm. go up against like Magneto, which never happens. Yeah, not at all. So I mean, it's it's got you know, as you said, like there's there's so much going on, but a lot of it's not even necessarily all happening at the same time. Like you have subplots building throughout, and then you have other pieces coming into play. And and I guess the uh, I guess the major connection for Spider-Man is obviously the Kingpin. Yep. Who's kind of that's more on his level, but everyone else is kind of on, on different levels. But you know, it, it 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 does feel like it kind of works because the care, as you said, like. When the initial thing happens, the characters have all reasons to kind of be there, and then they have reasons to kind of team up together. It feels relatively natural, and there's space for them. Again, this is back when most stories were not multi-part epics, um, and so like they, they gave it enough extra room to really expand and have them do more things together and have it be more of a legitimate team-up as opposed to just a kind of done-in-one. Um, and it's, it's enjoyable. Yeah, there's a lot of elements, but you're packing so many pages. you got three different issues. 
it makes sense that you have so many elements. Whereas, you know, if you had a reduced page count, you probably would have been able to take out Ultron, for example. He He's probably the most extraneous option there because he doesn't feel as natural to the world. It's true. It It is weird that he's there. And I wonder if he was an, uh, an addition later because the story would work just fine if it was only dealing with the ghost and the centurion. Yeah, I mean, those would be well enough, you know, and in terms of power set, like you're still dealing with enough for these guys, especially the way that Black Panther would have been treated at the time. Like, I feel like nowadays, Black Panther is given a lot more credit um, as, as in terms of his capabilities. But at the time, he was probably, you know, not given quite the same due as he is now. There's one point where Ultron is thinking to himself and he uses thought bubbles. And I don't recall if Ultron uses thought bubbles normally. I thought it was odd because he's a machine. That is weird. And he does have sentience, but would the sentience be, would it be portrayed as actual thought patterns? Like he, because, or would he just be calculating things and he could speak those lines and I wouldn't, I wouldn't bat an eye, but he was thinking them, which is, I thought was kind of weird. I feel like in the Marvel Universe, you can you can come up and hand wave a, a solution. I mean, yeah. uh, Vision has thought bubbles and he has mind engrams based on someone else, but really he's just a computer intelligence I patterned so. after someone else. Right. So if you, if you can buy Vision having thought bubbles, I think you should be okay with Ultron. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Comic book logic. I love it. Yep. Um, this is still during the period of horny Spider-Man. So in page 10, like you have this artist trying to do kind of a sexy MJ, which actually isn't bad because it doesn't feel as salacious as, as we've seen other artists. Her nightgown is a lot more modest than the lingerie that McFarlane or Larson would put her in. Like someone would actually wear this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like some of the other things we've seen are like, I don't think my wife's going to wear that. Um, another thing of note is that Iron Man doesn't appear out of costume in this entire story. Oh, and yeah, he, not at all. He makes a mention to it at one point. He says on page 15, people are staring, I can feel it, wondering why I'd send Iron Man instead of myself. But if they knew mm. the real reason I kept my armor on, they'd stare even harder. And then a little little editor's note to learn that reason, see current issues of Iron Man. So I wasn't familiar with what was going on in Iron Man at the time. I was like, could it even be, is it Rhodey in the suit? No, it's not no, Rhodey. No. It's um, definitely Tony. I'm pretty sure he. This is after he was shot by Kathy Dare, so he's probably crippled. Yeah, so he's got um, some sort of nerve damage, some n nerve issue that's uh, taken over his whole body or something like that. This is during yeah. John Burns' run on Iron Man in the '90s. Yeah, it should be around that period. It's before he, uh, before he, quote unquote, like, quote unquote, dies, and then has like a weird telepresence sensor where he's not even in the armor, but he's like sensing like he is. Anyways, it's not that he's still in the armor. Uh, but as, as far as I know, he's just, yeah, he's, he's partially crippled. I, it's hard to remember, right? I mean, there's so much stuff that happens to Iron Man. Yeah. what do you think of the Centurion character? Did you like him? Um, I, I actually would have liked a little bit more time with him. I don't understand how a beam of energy gives him armor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't really, I didn't really understand the transformation, and like I remember the character, and I remember seeing him on like cards and like in the back of like a, an Iron Man one shot about like Iron Man's greatest villains type of thing. Greatest villains. Well, I mean, he's pretty powerful. I mean, I, in his original appearances, I think he was quite a threat. But in terms of 
understanding why he can do. The Tri-Sentinel is also extremely powerful, but I wouldn't call him one of Spider-Man's greatest villains. Yeah, but the difference is Spider-Man has a lot of great villains. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Like, if you can name... I mean, most people probably couldn't name more than, like, five legitimate Iron Man villains. Like, it's hard. Like, there are... There's not that many considering how long the character's been around. I thought he was... I thought... I like his human persona. What's his name? Arthur. Yeah, well, he was he was very yeah he was very um what's the word very gullible and I kind of like that he wants to believe that his company means well he, you know he wants to believe in the science of what he's doing I kind of like that part like he was he's not really a villain per se as he's portrayed he's more yeah. of a accidental antagonist and who wants to protect his company but I like that that it, it it humanizes him um, he's not an awful person. Yeah, I like that too, and I like, and that meant that they they take care of him, they handle him and treat him differently than they do like Ultron, um, or or Ghost even. Uh, I, I thought that was nice. I I would have liked to learn a little bit more about him too. He's kind of a one and done character, it seems. Mm. But I like that he kind of redeemed himself at the end when he helped he helped take down Ultron. Yeah, it's a nice way to go. A nice way to go out. Yep. And he he wasn't the. Uh... He wasn't the last Centurion. There was another one at some point. Oh, okay. I can't tell you anything about him. I really can't remember. Oh, okay. But That's I know great. he exists. Do you want to move on to the next story? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this one is Outlaw Justice. It's another three-part story that takes place throughout these three annuals. It doesn't have the same page count as as Vibranium Vendetta. It's There are a lot shorter stories. Um, and this one is kind of a question mark for me because they were obviously building... To something that never happens. Yeah. So the, the basic story here is that Silver Sable is gathering recruits for some sort of special assignment. So she she talks to Rocket Racer, the Prowler, and Will of, Will of the Wisp, and eventually tries to get Sandman on on their side as well. And uh, they have to go rescue a hostage, a, a political leader's daughter. Is being uh, is being has been kidnapped and they have to go rescue her. So let me ask you this. So this is three parts. It's written by Michelini. You got uh, at least in the first chapter by Kupperberg. Um, do you feel, I guess, from a from a writing standpoint, what did you enjoy the story of these characters kind of coming together and being a team and kind of being able to see a bit more of like what these two characters like the you know, Silver Sable, which I think of the bunch of them probably has the most personality that we would have liked at this point and then you have you know rocket racer uh and, and will the wisp etc like did you like having these characters together did you find them engaging or were you kind of bored by them all <laughs> honestly i don't care about rocket racer at all or will of the wisp prowler is kind of interesting but he didn't really do much in this in this story here um although they do get into his backstory a little bit which is interesting and uh but what i find most interesting is that this is sort of a continuation of sandman's story arc that was that we saw in the last volume because he's mm-hmm. recently given up crime and he's trying to do the right thing and so he goes he has a lot of questions here is like they're called they call themselves the outlaws cuz they're all sort of bad guys that are trying to do something good but Oh, sorry. I remember now. Sorry, this is all coming back to me. The, Sandman is hired as a guard to guard the hostage. He's mm-hmm. being a bad guy, and through the course of this one, ha- uh, decides to join them in the end. He does the right thing. 
So, but it's confusing because isn't this after he was already an Avenger? Like, yes, I, I, I it is. Trying to place it, like it, it feels like oddly placed in terms of, you know, why is this happening at this point? Yeah, you're right. It it is oddly placed because he was trying to do the right thing, but the, that's one of the struggles in the previous volume as well with all of the Sandman stories was that he was constantly being met with opposition, people who just assumed he was bad or that he could never be reformed. He wasn't given the opportunities, and so. I think at some point he just goes, oh, what the heck? I guess I need to be a bad guy after all. Um, so maybe that's, I can't remember. Is that where we're at here? Well, because I, I, in this story, don't you have at the very end, um, Silver, like offering him a job? But you're like, yes. hasn't that already happened before? Like, No, I don't think how so, many times actually. Is, how many times is she going to offer him a job? This is something that happens, like, this is sort of, isn't this sort of the beginning of Silver Sable and Sandman's relationship? Because they go into business together, and I, don't they become an item or something at one point? Or, um, I, I don't remember. But well, actually, reading it again, it, this, so this is after he was—he's already been with the Avengers. Sounds like he was already working for her, and that now this new contract is to be part of the Outlaws, which I guess doesn't go anywhere. Or is this before Web of Spider-Man Fifty? Like, I can't remember the chronology because I remember the Outlaws being in an issue of Web of Spider-Man. Oh, really? Because I thought the Outlaws that we'd never see them ever again. No, they were actually, uh, but I can't remember if it actually predates this or like how that works. But it, it's definitely something that does happen. Huh. It would have to be like, after this because this is their origin story. I, I guess. I always thought that the, the, the other one came first, but I guess, yeah, I guess maybe it happened here first. It, it's one of the problems with, you know, having kind of half memories of things and then reading epic collections, which, you know, you don't really have a good sense of where this takes place in relation to the regular, like the issues of the other books. Like, yeah. you know, where it takes place in relation to amazing Spider-Man, but it doesn't help you in relation to anything else. No, certainly doesn't. And we're reading these out of order. So that doesn't help. No, uh, it helps not at all. Yeah. <laughs> well, overall it was a fine story. I didn't have any major issues with it or anything. It just, uh, it felt like it was building up to something that ultimately doesn't happen, which is the, the formation of this team that we never see again. But apparently we do see them again, because you just said that you've seen them again. Oh, I, I just looked it up. Uh, so they appeared as the Outlaws, um, or at least all together, in Web of Spider-Man 50, which was actually published in May 1989. 99. So go, so go figure. And again, it had Sandman, Puma, Prowler, Rocket Racer, Will of the Wisp, and, and Silver Sable. 99, that would be, is that... Uh... Or 89, sorry, 89. Oh, 89. So that's before this. Yeah, that's what I mean. Before this. So what the heck? I'm afraid I don't know. I don't have any questions for you. I guess they were just telling a story of the past. I guess. Isn't that strange, though? Because you're right. This this reads like the origin of this interesting new team, and then it it, it just kind of doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> so what? who wrote who, who wrote the Web of Spider-Man? It was uh, good old Jerry Conway. Oh, yeah, of course it would have been at that time, yeah. I guess maybe the other possibility is that it's an inventory that's been sitting in a drawer for a long time and they pulled it out for because they needed some content for the annuals. You know, that's absolutely possible as well. It's hard to it's, it's really hard to know and and you know, some of these characters didn't really appear much of anywhere for a while afterwards. So, it's not like they they suddenly had a team. And Puma can't, can't be in it because of the stuff that happened since Web of Spider-Man number 150. Yeah. Yes, which <laughs> would have which would have actually been published the same month as Web of Spider-Man 50. 
Yeah, right, yeah. Because huh. there was a period where I only remember this because the Clone Saga started in Web of Spider-Man 117, which was the same month as Spectacular 217. So I always knew it was, a, it was 100 issues ahead. I don't know uh, huh, okay. what it took to get at that point. And maybe there was a double shipping at some point. But for a while there, I always knew what the other issue was because it was exactly 100 less. Right. I think Craven's Last Hunt is the same way, the, the numbering. Yeah, thing. actually. Yep. Um, so this is this. It, it's a bit of a grab bag. It's I, I like it because it's trying to tell a story with characters that you will never see anywhere else, you know. And Silver Sable obviously was, uh, I think, one that you know was started with Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends. And I think the Spider Office liked Silver Sable. She got her own book for a while, Silver Sable in the Wild Packs, so she was obviously a popular character. People liked reading her, liked writing her. Um, the art in the first chapter does her no favors whatsoever. It yeah. just doesn't look anything like the Silver Sable, Silver Sable I'm used to. Uh, it's very soft. Um, and, and just the way it shows her body just feels very, very weird. Like I'm used to her of kind of being a very athletic, not a voluptuous body, but just more of like a, like, you know, a very athletic body, kind of like Black Widow, but less kind of breasts. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm trying to well, think of, of nice ways to say this, but I'm, like, she just, she just always looked like a very athletic, lean body. And I find that the art in this story does not do a good job trying to illustrate the way she actually is. Well, that's good old Alan Cooperberg for you, I guess. Apparently, yeah. Do you want to move? Do you want to move on from the outlaws and and do some other stories? Sure. Which of these other stories, annual backups, did you like uh, the best? Uh well, you know, again, as a kid, I wouldn't have appreciated it, but as an adult, I definitely do. So I liked seeing uh, Sal Buscema do an origin of Spider Man. Yep, totally. That was pretty cool. Again. I, I I wish I could go back in time and just slap myself because whenever I would see um, the, the work by Buscema, I just really didn't like it. Now, part of it was there was that weird period in the 90s where Senkovich was doing the inks on him, and I think it was just overpowering and just not as enjoyable. But here, it's just so delightful. Like, he has a very – you know it's his work, but it's it's not overpowering. It's such a great storytelling style. It's a quick little story about the origin, but it just works. You know, it, it sings. It's, what, three pages? But I, I would happily have had more pages of that than having some of the other stories go longer. <laughs> yep, I, I would agree with that. I love it when other artists take Ditko's panels and just interpret them with their own style. I think it's, I love it. On the other end, we have Michelini doing a Venom story, which I really didn't care for. Um, <laughs> It's trying to kind of, you know, put things in between the lines of uh, as uh, Venom was kind of on his way to another uh, of his battles with Spider-Man. The art is really what does it a disservice. Like, it's terrible. It doesn't make Venom look scary. If you look at page 52, the middle panel is just like, what face is that? Right. I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, this, this is not any version of Venom. I feel like the artist misunderstood or didn't understand or didn't have any reference. Like, they could have given him a comic book to say this is what he's supposed to look like. Like... It just it just fails on so many levels. The story itself is it's serviceable but not great. But uh, but the art yep. really is terrible. But I love this story. There's so much potential for this to be awesome. It's like he, he's sitting in a diner, and the diner gets held up, and they have no idea that Venom is sitting right there. I think there's so much potential for this to be completely awesome. But I really do think it's just the lack of the, a good storyteller, uh, visual storyteller to put this together because the story I, I think would be quite decent just for a short what is it six or eight page thing yeah i mean it doesn't try too hard it's not it's not bad it's just this the art is just not not good yeah but that's part and parcel for these annuals 
Um, the next story in this annual is a man called Chance in Second Chance with Steve <laughs> Ditko art. Ditko did a lot of annual work back in he this did, period. And I don't think it's very good. Yeah. It's he he's was past his prime at this point and Yeah, it's interesting. I'm looking at it again and I'm realizing when Chance is in costume, it's pretty good. When Chance is not in costume and you have the other people in their faces, I it just it, it doesn't fit the style of the times and it just feels very out of place. It feels very gimmick like silly looking, but something like he can do the action. He can do chance doing his thing. It's when you have actual people talking to each other and kind of looking like fifties gangsters with these weird grins, then it doesn't work. But the rest of it, I thought actually does work. Yeah. He, he's good at pacing and he knows how to lay out his story. Um, and he's sort of a minimalist when it comes to artwork. He'll, he'll put just kind of the bare minimum of what needs to be said in the picture in order to convey, convey the action. This was a, a, this was actually kind of a fun story because it continues on something that happened in the Sinister Six volume uh, because mm-hmm. Chance kind of double-crossed a guy that was, um, that was, that hired him in that story. And then this guy hires him again to give him a second chance and then he gets double-crossed again. So <laughs> I thought it was, <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny. Yeah, it was fine. Uh, so I guess that brings us to the next annual. Yeah, One Track Mind. This is a, a Rhino story. Rhino is robbing a bank. Spider-Man stops him. This is this was a weird one because Rhino was not himself. No, he... I mean, money, money. Like, That's all he, he said. Just not, it's kind of yeah, like... He, he, he's kind of like he was hypnotized or placed under some sort of spell because he, he usually says more yeah. than just one word. Yeah, there's a bunch of weird stuff here, too, because, like, I guess he gets hit by a subway car. All right, that's pretty bad. And there's, like, a crack of something. Like, is he, like, is he, how hurt is he? Crack a tomb. And it looks like Spider-Man never actually fishes him out. You see all the other, like, hoods all uh, all captured. And then Spider-Man just pieces out. Like, I I was very confused. (laughs) Yeah, you don't know... Uh, Rhino's motivation for doing what he's doing at all, except that I don't know, maybe he just likes to rob banks. But he's so out of character. Well, that it feels it's like weird. it's part of something, right? It feels like this is this could be like a part one of like what's really going on with Rhino, but instead yeah. it's a done in one, and no one ever cares. Yep, it's very strange, and it's got a weird ending for, with Mary Jane too. The last scene is just strange. There's like a missing wedding ring, mm. and. Uh, but and yeah, it's just kind of the whole thing is a little out of place. I'm it's a Michelini story, so you know if anyone knew what was going on in current Spider-Man threads, it would be him. But I don't know what he was thinking. Was about. it a Michelini story? Are you sure about that? Um. Okay, let me check. It was plotted by Jerry Conway, script by Terry Cavanaugh. Oh, you're right. Okay, so I take that back. Oh, you know what? It's interesting. Okay, so it says. Note, this story precedes the Deadly Foes of Spider-Man limited series. Oh, okay. So maybe maybe if we go if we were to read that, maybe it would make a little bit more context or they'd talk about why he maybe is a little bit addled, who knows, but at least that makes yeah. me feel a little bit better about it. That tells me that this was definitely an inventory story. Because it's so out of chronological place. It was like Conway had written it way back then 
and just they had to shelve it for whatever reason. So they, it's been sitting in a file cabinet and they brought it out and someone drew it and Terry Kavanaugh scripted it. And there we go. That's where we're at. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'm just trying to see like what else uh, Rhino was kind of doing at the time. And, and he wasn't doing much. And I guess Deadly Foes of Spider-Man would have come out, well, I guess around this time. So, like, it's hard to know when the annual actually got published. But, yeah, yeah I guess De- Deadly Foes was in May of that year. So, okay, well, that makes me feel a little bit better about it, that maybe there's more <laughs> more to it than we know. It just means I have to go back and read my Deadly Foes trade paperback. I got it somewhere. I got to gotta find it. I mean, you don't read enough, Curtis. So you really got to get on that Deadly Foes ah, of Spider-Man. Yeah, or Deadly, yeah. <laughs> okay, the next story here is a Fred Hembeck story. And I actually really like Fred Hembeck. Some people don't like him at all. Um, I think he's funny. I found myself very bored by it. Oh, yeah. It, it takes a lot of work to, to read. He puts a lot of very uh, wordy humor in his work. Um, very wordy. Peter Parker is a babysitter. This is long before he became Spider-Man. He, he's hired to take care of this guy, this little baby. And uh, things just go wrong for him all the time. Uh, what's kind of funny is we find out at the end that the baby is actually um, Robbie Baldwin, who will eventually grow up to become Speedball. Oh, yeah. Or Penance. <laughs> or Penance. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> oh, man. And that's the annuals. Wow. That was, no, there's that actually some... there's the third what's... annual. Wasn't that the third one there? Nope. That was the second one. The third oh one has a has a um, a backup story called Rocket Racer in Fast Feud Two: Speed Demons Revenge. Oh yeah, Speed that was weird. Yeah, Speed Demons a character that I really only know from these days from the uh, what is it Superior Foes of Spider Man. Yeah, that was a funny Superior title. Foes. I always liked Speed Demon. I thought it was interesting. This doesn't really do anything for him. It's nope. it's very. It's very boring. Yeah, and I don't care. Like I said before, I don't care about Rocket Racer at all. So whatever. That that this story didn't do anything for me, but it's just a backup, so it's fine. Uh, but kind of cool. Next is um, a three-page origin story of Venom, a three-page origin story of Hobgoblin, and just a two-page. Oh, it's a three-page as well. Three-page story of Green Goblin, the Harry Osborn Green Goblin. Yeah, I like these very much. Um, I thought they were pretty good. It's it's obviously fun and quaint to read any Hobgoblin origin uh, <laughs> before they fixed it in 1998. Um, so it's you know it's it's very wrong now in terms of it being about um, Ned Leeds. But otherwise, you know, it's enjoyable. And again, seeing the well, Jason Philip Mackendale yeah. and all that kind of stuff is cool. It's already it's already retconned, like because this one isn't about. I mean, it has Ned Leeds in there, but they that they tell the retcon story of Ned Ned Leeds that he wasn't actually the Hobgoblin, right? Or no? No, oh, no, no, no. Is, I see. Is, yeah, you're right. It is here. Ned. Ned is the Hobgoblin because that other story doesn't exist yet. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, and then Jason Mackendale takes the armor after, or the yeah, the the costume after Ned Leeds is killed. But they yeah, they have the Inferno story in here and everything like that. So they it's it's a nice brief up-to-date version uh, up-to-date f- at to this point at least of where the character is at because he already by this point had a really convoluted history for sure i i felt like this was you know kind of standard annual fare but yeah. enjoyable you know like i it didn't bother me this is why i like annuals 
I like annuals because of the little, hey guys, in case you missed it, here's what's going on kind of thing, because we didn't have internet at the time. We didn't have all of the, we couldn't, we couldn't, like, I mean, I was a kid, so I couldn't buy every back issue to find out what was going on with these characters. So these annuals that would have this or schematics of buildings or, Mm -hmm. you know, different profiles on different characters, that's what I love in annuals. It's yeah, it's it's very much of a bygone era, obviously, where, you know, you would get any scraps of information you could from any source because that's the only way you could do it. Whereas now, if you wanted to, you could probably like, you know, source out everything. Uh, you could read enough articles and enough people, you know, breaking down issues, go to spiderfan.org, yeah, right. read like, you know, every, every issue of Spider-Man and you don't ever have to actually pick up a comic book that's and you true. can get, you know, everything. Whereas back in the day you were, you were, you were getting like trading cards that like alluded to a storyline here and you're like, well, what happened there? You know, it was, it was very different. It's hard for people who, you know, like for more modern fans who didn't grow up during that era to understand it. Obviously all the legacy fans will, will appreciate it. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a, a hidden wonder of these old, uh, old annuals. Yeah. It's wonderful. Well, that wraps up our annuals. Woo. Yeah, that was a it's a doozy. We can continue with Amazing Spider-Man number three fifty nine, Toy Death. All right. This is the beginning of a two part series. Michelini is back as the writer, but Mark Bagley is taking a well deserved break. I think after cramming six issues into something like two two months. So we have Chris Marinin as our artist, and he he's not as strong as Bagley, I don't think, but he still does a pretty decent job of uh, showing our showing the action and making a couple of exciting issues here. Yeah, I think as a villain, he's not bad. I definitely think he's better at the superheroes than people, um, and just kind of hanging out and having those types of things. I thought some of the quieter moments did not really work for me in the same way, but whereas I felt the action, he was able to be a little bit better. I don't know. Maybe he was just kind of cribbing off others or, you know, taking other inspirations and being able to do a better job of it. I definitely thought the first shot, the first uh, full page panel of Spider-Man was probably my favorite page of the yep. issue. Yeah. Uh, just something about how like the spider on the back looked really cool. Like everything kind of looked, the shadows worked. And then from there I felt it was, you know, a little bit of a kind of went downhill from there, but I definitely felt, you know, the action was okay. Um, but yeah, the, some of the more personal moments I've, I felt fell a little flat. Hmm. So this is uh, starring Cardiac. He's our villain of the week in this issue here. And he he has appeared a few times in the past uh, through the various volumes that we've covered. And so this time, Cardiac is going after a different set of criminals. He's going after legal criminals, people who uh, are making money by, like, uh, scamming the system, I guess, basically, mm-hmm. like uh, tax tax evaders and that kind of stuff. And he's basing all of his crimes off of what he reads in the Bugle. And this is interesting because this is also Cardiac. He, he doesn't think of himself as a villain. He is not your typical no. villain. He, he, he goes after people who are harming others, who are, you know, cheating the system, all this kind of stuff. It's honorable, but he goes about it the wrong way. He doesn't follow the law. He doesn't, he uses a lot of kind of lethal force sometimes and, that's not exactly the way things work in the Spider-Man world, so Spider-Man goes after him. Yeah, he's, he's not that different from Punisher in some ways. I mean, obviously a different, slightly different on what a but he's you know not that dissimilar. 
in terms of meeting out justice and be- believing that capital punishment is fine. Yeah. Um, I do find it interesting that uh, on the cover of the issue, which again is by Bagley, which would have been a little bit of a misnomer because it looks great. Um, <laughs> and, and then you have the return of the villain you demanded. And I, I wonder how long Michelinie was waiting to say cardiac attack. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, and who knows even if he, he said that, maybe that was... Uh... Maybe it was the editor, Danny yeah. Fingeroth maybe <laughs> wrote that. Um, I, I do like Cardiac. I, I think he's really neat. He's always been a favorite of mine because he he has a cool costume. Uh, and I I like the just the kind of the tortured mindset that he puts himself in all the time. He, he's interesting. Yeah, as I said, like, he's different. You know, and there's reason. I mean, obviously, he's more memorable because of his costume. He yep. looks cool. But, you know, yeah, it's it's definitely has an, an interesting story in terms of his characterization, why he does things uh, that kind of puts him at odds with Spider-Man. This issue obviously is also important because uh, we see Cletus Cassidy and we know that he has the symbiote, but or like what it kind of looks like. It, well, it's actually doesn't not super obvious that it's a symbiote, although in previous issues it's pretty obvious there. But here it almost looks like he has a blood, like a weird bloody wound, but it's actually alive. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of the, the beginnings of where we're going to go with Carnage. Uh, which is crazy that that's just like the next issue after this, or af- after this one, I should say, um, which we're so close to Carnage. Yeah, and we never saw any Carnage, because they've been hinting at Carnage for months now, mm-hmm. uh, but we didn't see it at all through the Round Robin story. They just didn't, I guess because it's Al Milgram writing, he didn't put any of those little things in, so it's just here to remind us, oh yeah, this story's coming. And this is Carnage's first kill, he pulls a guard through the jail cell bars. I can't even imagine that. It's interesting too. I, it makes me curious. Like I'm, I'm guessing Bagley designed the character, right? But like, I guess Marinan technically gets to kind of have the first, not appearance of Carnage, but on like in the second issue, you definitely see a little bit of Carnage's face and a bit of his, you know, tendrils. Again, not looking as inhuman as later. Right. Yeah. I think, uh, I think Bagley definitely gets the the co-creator credit for this. What do you think of this the second issue where you know yeah Spider-Man has to has to rescue Cardiac and then again we have a lot more of Cardiac's backstory which I thought was important to understand more of the character uh, and connect with him better and you have him in in Spider-Man kind of again not really not at odds but you know kind of fighting at the same time. What do you think? This I think that uh, I didn't like this one as much as the last issue just because it wasn't as uh, I don't know stuff not as much stuff kind of happened it, it, a lot of it was taken up by this backstory which is this the first time we're finding out the history of cardiac i think so I, I, I now i'd have to go back and check the other issues but i feel like we didn't really get much of cardiac before and this is like the first real heaping helping of the story we've gotten actually explaining why he does what he does it goes into so much detail so i have to assume that it's he's not just recapping he's actually explaining this for the first time to us no sorry one thing i just noticed in trying to remember the timing of this this is before image right like the image guys haven't left yet or is this after the image guys have left uh i think i believe eric larson is on adjective of the spider-man at this point doing his sinister six story okay i was just curious because at the end of the issue when it just says next issue the return of cletus cassidy and friend as spidey comes face to face with the spawn of venom and i'm just like spawn and (laughs) <laughs> in, in bold like obviously he is the spawn of venom but these days like you can't say spawn especially in the comic of, circles yeah right Definitely. so i mean I, I i'm sure that this predates you know image or by a little bit but it's just interesting to me 
it, it definitely stuck out. But again, I don't think it would have stuck out 30 years ago. Yeah. Um, one thing that kind of stood out to me here is in Cardiac's backstory, he says that uh, <laughs> all of this stuff happened to him, then all of a sudden he became Cardiac. And mm. it doesn't say how he got his suit, how he got no. the technology to to do all the stuff that he's doing, because he's got some pretty advanced technology with his glider, his his staff, um, everything. Mm-hmm. And he it, it just skips over that part completely. It talks all about his life up right until the point where he decides to be cardiac, and then it doesn't tell us how he became cardiac. Mm. Do you think that's why this issue kind of fails a little bit for you? That could be it. I also think that it's just like, man, they're they're going after chop shops and tax evaders and stuff, and and they had to throw in armed guards in order to make the, this issue more exciting. <laughs> yep. And they're not just armed guards. It's like they're they're security soldiers for this uh, for this warehouse, but they're like f- in full like battle armor with huge laser guns yeah. and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, anyway, there's uh, one reference to Harry Osborne being the Green Goblin, I think, on page 391. Oh, yeah, uh, she's so upset about Harry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Liz is so upset about Harry. See recent issues of Spectacular Spider-Man. So, yeah, we're getting closer to, you know, the death of... I mean, we're still a year and a half away, I believe, from Harry Osborne dying, but we're getting closer. But Harry is never in Amazing Spider-Man. He is is a Spectacular Spider-Man villain. So we've been covering this whole, like almost a decade of Spider-Man comics on this podcast here, but we've never really encountered Harry Osborn hmm. at all as the Green Goblin. That is weird. Yeah. I, I hadn't even thought about that, but that's true. I mean, I guess, I mean, the first time probably that we're going to see any mention of Harry in the epics that I can think of is there's a chapter in Maximum Carnage where they mentioned that they were just at fu- uh, Harry's funeral like a week ago. <laughs> And oh, because yeah. I know that those issues are going to be there, that's why I know that that reference will be there. But I'm not sure if any other issues is spectacular will be there leading up to it. And I bet that reference, that scene that you just described, is probably in a spectacular Spider-Man issue in Maximum Carnage? Probably, but actually, I'm thinking about it. I think it's actually in Spi- an adjective of Spider-Man, actually. Okay. No, I think about it. I, it's, I shouldn't remember it that well, <laughs> and apparently I do, which is creepy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it'd be interesting that when we get there. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the fact that you're right. He's kind of a persona non grata. He's not really in the book at all. And yet important things are happening over in the other side of the street. I'm sure hoping we get some spectacular Spider-Man epic collections at some point. Oh, my God. I mean, it's criminally, it's, it's just, you know, it's downright criminal that we don't have more of JMD's spectacular or yeah. that we don't have more of Jerry Conway's, uh, I guess, web and spectacular, you know, like those, yep. those were some fun runs. And we've had, obviously, some of the Jerry Conway stuff in the Tombstone trade. But, uh, you know, it, there's a lot of uncollected stuff. Yes, it's very, very underrepresented. And yet we're getting Maximum Carnage again. <laughs> True. But that's a book that's always going to sell. It's evergreen. I know. Yep. With its one additional issue from the old volumes, ugh. <laughs> we'll get there next year. We will, yeah. Let's move on to the last topic tonight, which is the uh, the Fear Itself graphic novel. Spider-Man Fear Itself. Oh, before we do, can I mention one more thing? Yes. The page before it starts, we have the uh, the Overstreet's price update um, cover art, and it's by Mark Bagley. Which yeah. I, if you had, if you pointed a gun at my head, I would not have figured out it was Mark Bagley. I, w- I said I was thought the same thing too. It's a very different style than what we are used to, um, and I can't. It maybe it's a different inker that gives it a different feel, but yeah, it doesn't look like Mark Bagley. I think you know what I'm looking at it more, and I'm thinking 
it's really the Spider-Man that doesn't look like Bagley. Because it does look like Bagley's version of Rhino. And even the Vulture has kind of the trademark look of a Bagley character a in Bagley terms of the face. musculature. That's true, yeah. Yeah, you have to look this at it. This is Spider-Man. And I think it's Rhino as well, because I don't think that I'm very familiar with how Bagley draws Rhino. Maybe mm. He's got a lot of bumps on him. But yeah, you know, the the Spider-Man pose is a Bagley pose as well. So, I mean, if I if I had to guess without seeing the signature, I probably would figure it out eventually. Yeah, but you're right. It is definitely like, I don't know if it's the colors or the the inks but the the details on spider-man do not feel like a mark bagley spider-man although the pose is yep. but the actual details that make up the character doesn't look like him okay spider-man fear itself by jerry Oof. conway scripted by jerry conway and stan lee penciled by ross andrew inked by mike esposito and uh, letters by rick parker colors by bob shereen uh and with a cover by Joe Jusco, who was a very prolific artist through the 90s for, for Marvel Comics or Marvel and DC, I guess. We did a lot of cover work, not just for the like graphic novels, but I think for like some of the Spider-Man like, kind of novels, too. Yeah, and a lot of the trading cards. He was big with the trading yeah. cards. So the cover yeah. looks fantastic. Like that, the, I, I really like the Spider-Man. You know, even the, the kind of the specter of the goblin and Doctor Doom, it kind of looks cool. Yep. Um, the rest of it's a little forget- forgettable, but your eyes go right to the Spider-Man and it looks fantastic. And it definitely makes you think, like, this is going to be great. Yep. <laughs> and then you open up the book. Now, Ross yeah. Andrew is a guy that is, he's like, he's a well-known Spider-Man artist, isn't he? Oh, yeah. he's he's I would say he's Spider-Man royalty. But this book just doesn't fit. With no. It. And I wonder if it's Mike Esposito's inkers. I've said on the podcast before that I'm not a, really a fan of Mike Esposito's inks, and I really don't think that does this any justice here. No, I don't think it does. I, you know what? And, and this is going to sound unfair, so I apologize. But, you know, it's coming almost, what, 20 years after some of his best work? Like, it is much later in his career. You know, and he at this point would have been, trying to think, doing math, 61, 62 years old, like, you know, he's a much older artist at this point, whereas when he was on Amazing Spider-Man, he was, you know, probably in, I guess, his around his, like, late uh, mid to late 30s or early 40s. So this is quite a, a jump in terms of where he is in his life. He actually passed away in 1993, so not that long after this. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, this is not my favorite Ross Andrew work. I, I love Ross Andrew from his kind of classic Spider-Man stuff, but this is... This just doesn't feel like it. It definitely does feel like a different era. It does not feel like, you know, the kind of the early 90s period. The colors are a little off to me. They're not that vibrant. But I, again, there's a, there's just a lot of here that just doesn't quite work for me. Like, if you go to page 40, 40 uh, sorry, 437, you have the shot of MJ and Peter are kissing. And then suddenly the next page, like, so the next panel, are they much higher up? Like, what's happening? <laughs> Like the perspective's all weird, and I'm just like, why are we doing this? Like, and I and I, I feel like that happened a bunch of times. Like the art, I didn't feel it was really up to snuff, especially for kind of an exercise special like this. You want to really have something that really kind of hits more emotionally, or just has stronger tones. The script was all over the place. Um, it's not really even a Spider-Man story. Uh, he spends most of the time fighting kind of a nameless you know ninja with powers and kind of wrestling with his own you know thoughts and, and fears because of this you know this hallucinogenic that gets in his face which he's dealt with before so this, is, this doesn't even feel that special the team up with silver sable feels kind of perfunctory um i totally forgot that there was ever kind of an, another baron uh, heinrich zemo probably for good reason because it's 
kind of weird and you know not a bad idea but it doesn't really go anywhere like it and then when it ends on page 470 of this big explosion and then you they don't even talk about what happens afterwards they go right to peter being at home and everything's fine and he's not in any way racked with you know the fact that someone just died where for a moment it looked like he might have an like a kind of an existential crisis about having to see another person dying and then he goes home and everything's great what was this about <laughs> you just threw a lot out there I'm curious how much of it Stanley wrote and how much of it was actually scripted by Jerry. And like this, Jerry's a great writer and this feels kind of lazy. Um, but I'm, I'm curious what their lead time was, but it's a special. So they should have as much time as they want. I'm, I have so many questions. Yeah, it's very, very strange. And, and so I, I did enjoy the twist with ne- with Zemo uh, hmm. toward the end there. I thought that was a nice twist because uh, I, I didn't see it coming. Uh, however, the rest of the story, yeah, it's like, where are we going with this? And the white ninja, the ghost ninja, is pretty much the, exactly the same as Ghost, the character Ghost, the one that was in uh, Iron Man, I mean, yes. Ant-Man 2. You're right. Uh, there's, But not called the same thing. And this was a character that's pretty prevalent in the 90s, hopping through, you know, Iron Man stories and, and that kind of stuff. And But they don't use that character here. It's, it's a different character. It's just a bizarre story as well. It's like they call it fear itself. And while the fear does play a role in the story, it's not like you could take that part out of the story and the whole, the, the rest of the, the rest of the, the story stays intact. Yeah, I think you're right. And, and the whole, I mean, I, it's kind of interesting having Peter kind of doubting himself or kind of thinking that he's fighting a, an aspect of his personality. Kind of interesting, but again, you're doing it in a special as opposed to an ongoing series, so you never really get to see any any follow-up to that. And I guess part of the problem, in, especially in a collection like this where we just got a Moon Knight story, now we get a story that really should be a Captain America story. Like, right. Peter has no connection to Heinrich Zemo. It matters so little that he's even here. There's no personal connection for him. For for Silver Sable, there's a little bit more because her whole thing is hunting Nazis. But this feels like it should be a Captain America story. It would mean so much more to Captain America to have you know Heinrich Zemo coming back from the dead. That's hugely impactful. He was there when the character died. And again, they even talk about the fact that Heinrich Zemo only died because he was trying to kill Cap. So why isn't this an, a Captain America story? Like I just yeah. it boggles my mind. Because Spider-Man has no connection. The only connection is Silver Sable. But again, you could have taken her out and made it any other S.H.I.E.L.D. agent or someone and then getting Cap involved. Like, I just, there's nothing about this that says this has to be a Spider-Man story. In yeah, fact, most yeah. of it says it doesn't have to be a Spider-Man story at all. It would, it could be a, a Captain America Black Widow story. Oh, for sure. Um, or, you know, it could still be a Captain America and Silver Sable story. And they meet for the first time and they bond over their hatred for Nazis, you know, and, and, and work together. Like, it, it would totally work. And, and the scenes where Spider-Man's wrestling with his guilt over past people he's killed or, had, or who he's seen killed and that kind of stuff. Like, Captain America could wrestle with that very same stuff. Just re- replace Uncle Ben with Bucky. Mm-hmm. Well, for sure. Yeah, it would We just wrote a better, better story than what we just got. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. These graphic novels are so hit and miss. Like some of them are so good and then others they're just like they're they're just the stories that kind of weren't good enough for the main title or something. I don't know. What's interesting is I feel like in this period that we've been kind of reading or with all the different epics you've been reading, I should say, that um, the ones that the kind of the graphic novels that seem to be good seem to be the Punisher ones. <laughs> The Punisher ones are excellent, yeah. That's right. And I wonder what, I guess it's because, again, they, 
it didn't have as like for Spider-Man, there's so many different places to get Spider-Man stories, whereas there weren't as many to get Punisher. So people like had a really good Punisher story. And like, let's do this as opposed to we need content. Well, and Spider-Man had he's had years and decades at this point of establishing him as an urban character that, you know, deals with Dr. Octopus and Vulture level villains. The Punisher was established as going after thugs and mob bosses, and he could be anywhere in the world. You can also place him at any point in history, going back to Vietnam. And so you have so much more story potential when you can place your character anywhere in the world, and you can place your character kind of any point in history, not like recent history, um, and you can uh, you can create one-off villains you don't have to tie them to any larger backstory like the zemo story or anything like that and it works for the punisher it works really well Mm -hmm. so i think uh i think spider-man is just he was out of his comfort zone here it was he was in territory that was unfamiliar to him and therefore it was unfamiliar to us um, I just want to say one thing. In this epic collection, the reproduction of this graphic no- novel is just really poor. And mm. uh, like the lines, the black lines are sharp and the colors are vibrant. But any time that there is a gray tone, a screen tone used, you know, the dot pattern, oh, yeah. uh, the scans are bad. And what happens when you have a bad scan of the dots and you shrink it slightly because the graphic novel is printed at a larger size... And oh. it is reprinted slightly smaller to fit this comic book page. You get a weird polka dot pattern. It's called a moray pattern, and it's all throughout the backgrounds of this book. And it's incredibly distracting, and it looks so bad. And I can't believe that Marvel let it go through. Yeah, I agree. I'm really shocked because they're. I mean, I would have to say for the most part, their collection departments have been nothing but top notch, right? Yep. Like, yep. We're, 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 I mean, printing issues, which are nothing to do with them aside, most of these collections have been so well put together and you can tell that they really take their time and, and love and making sure that these collections are well put together. So it is interesting that something like that would kind of sneak through. And it's not just one page. It's every single page of this graphic novel right. issue. Every single one. You know, I, I have to say after the first one, I kind of got used to it and just forgot about it. But you're right. It's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, oh, I, f- I forgot that the issue is sorry, that the uh, the special started with a terrible MJ walking home getting accosted by thugs. Ugh, oh, yeah. I'm so done with that trope. And it, even here, it's it's pretty terrible. Yep, it is. And th- this this Peter feels old too. Like he doesn't feel, and even even in the Andrew art, like he doesn't feel like a young man. Like he feels like an old an old person. <laughs> well, I don't know. It just it doesn't have that youthful demeanor that I'm used to. Yeah, and I think that's partly to do with um, Ross Andrews still draws Spider-Man like he was drawn in the 60s and 70s, whereas at this point, we're used to Spider-Man by Todd McFarlane, where his knees are up over his head when he's swinging through. So he looks, he just looks stiff. Yes, he does. Yeah. So then we have uh, some back matter, which is very enjoyable, which we we have, you know, an article from Marvel Age, all about the uh, the official Marvel Comics tryout book competition. Yeah. which is very cool. And then then we have some more uh, about uh, stuff that was originally featured in Marvel Vision. Oh, hold on. You, sh- you should need to mention the page that they reprint from the, about in uh, Marvel Age is Mark Bagley's actual tryout page. Yes. So that's really cool to see because uh, it's important because now he's on Spider-Man. 
So very nice. It's interesting because it doesn't have a lot of the hallmarks of what I'm used to from his art. Yeah, I think that um, it shows his strength of storytelling and, and uh, composition and stuff, but it's not his style. He definitely no. learns um, later on, kind of, he settles into his, his style that we all know and love. And then you have, uh, let's see, The Greatest Comics Never Seen. So something from, uh, it's, a, it's more of Mark Bagley and yep. his tryout work, but this time it was republished um, years later in Marvel Vision, which was... Uh, uh, a great magazine in the late 90s that I really enjoyed that Tim Tui was putting together. Yeah. Loved it. It was great. And uh, after that, we have the original Spider-Man Round Robin, the Sidekicks Revenge trade paperback art, which I remember seeing everywhere. Yeah. By Dwayne uh, Turner. Very, yeah. It was very prevalent. And then there was another, uh, let's see, uh, from the pin from the trade paperback, there was a pinup gallery. So you have an, an Alan Davis Spider-Man, which looks pretty cool, actually. That's really cool. You don't get to see Alan Davis draw Spider-Man very much, although he did draw the Spider-Man movie adaptation when the first Spider-Man right. movie came out. Yeah, that's right. And I, that was featured on one of your other, I guess, like in, in the same feed, but one of the, the other shows on your feed. Yep, the Epic Marvel Movie Podcast. That's right. <laughs> and we have a... Some art by Steve Lytle, some a great Sal Buscema Spider-Man that I really liked. Yes. Um, great, great color work. I don't know who did the colors there, but it's fantastic. And then we have a, a very early Mike McCone, but unmistakably Mike McCone. Oh, yeah. And uh, I loved it, actually. I thought it was great. Like, it, it was, it actually looks so modern. Like, it doesn't look of this period. Yeah, it looks really, really nice. It's a lot more kind of detail than we're used to with the streamlined work of the 90s. Mm-hmm. Then we have Al Milgram. Oh, I'm glad that he he did a he did a pinup for a story that he wrote. And then we have yeah. a lot of trading cards by Joe Jesco. Oh yeah, they're the, and, the uh, Joe Jesco cards. And then we also have some uh, some Mark Bagley ones. I remember the Spider-Man '94 series. I didn't have a lot of that series, but oh, man, they look great. Yeah. Like, where did yeah. he have the time to do all this stuff? Well, he's fast. You know that he's a workhorse. He did it all, <laughs> and he he did every card in that Spider-Man series, the front and back. He did all of yeah. them. That and they look fantastic. Series. Yeah, they do. And, I loved it. And that was the one where they also had like the larger images, right? Like you put all the a bunch of them together and they put made one big image. Yeah, so if you have them in your card binder, the uh nine cards would in, in one card sheet would uh would have a larger image. It was fantastic stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely I, I felt like, you know, some of these epics don't have a lot of back matter. I really enjoyed it here and and even interspersed there was a few kind of one one pagers here and there to kind of break up the flow. And I really liked it. And again, it, it gave a little bit extra that you're not going to have if you just have those issues, True. which is, uh, I do appreciate that. Yep, definitely. Well, there we go. That's our episode. When you combine this episode with the other round robin Spider-Man 22A, then you will have a full Epic Collections worth of conversation that you just heard. So thanks, Adam, for joining us for this episode. Appreciate it as always. Absolutely. My pleasure. I can't wait to uh, eventually have more Spider-Man epics to talk about. And I think the next time we're on the show, we're going to probably either try to knock out a Sergeant Fury or maybe a Daredevil before we return back to Spider-Man uh, and tackle either Assassin Nation or Maximum Carnage. So we've got a lot of content in the near future to to. That's true. To I forgot we tackle. haven't done Assassin Nation Nation yet. So that's going to be great. Uh, Maximum Carnage next year. So excited about that. You, you've read it, though, right? You know what? I have. I've read maybe 70% of it. There are a few issues that I never had as a kid, and then I never bought a trade. So um, I love the story from what I've read. I loved it as a kid. I just haven't read the entire thing. <laughs> That's okay. You're going to have more than enough time to, to, to read it. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. 
So make sure you check out Adam's show, Comic Shenanigans, over on Podbean, uh, and listen to some amazing interviews and reviews from him. And otherwise, we will catch you on the next episode. Perfect. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.